Our guest today on the ninth episode of The Business We've Chosen is JT underscore Spoon, a high-stakes better out in Las Vegas. Spoon, how are you doing today? Um, I'm doing very well, thank you. Nice. Um, I figure we just kind of should get right into it. Um, so you're the stuff that I've followed you on Twitter, I've been following you for maybe a couple years. You're ah. almost always tweeting about NBA, WNBA, basketball type stuff. But you first started as like a advantage player out in Las Vegas. How did like that start? And when did you start transitioning into sports betting? Or when you, when you went out there initially, were you sports betting? Uh, I started as an advantage player in Washington State. Okay. What or, were you doing there? Or, or, um, well, uh, Chinook wins to be more specific since that's where I lived when I grew up. Now home to like five point off market Oregon duck spreads. Uh, oh, it's an Oregon day, spread. <laughs> yes. That's the one where you would see on social media that I actually cashed on uh, the Rose Bowl on Wisconsin, who is a three point favorite, lost the game, but I had a winning ticket. <laughs> you bet it Chinook wins. The Ducks were like favored. <laughs> How much do they take at Chinook wins? Uh, $500 on college sides. Gotcha. What if you try and like bet again? It's, you're not no, allowed to. No, no repops. Okay. They got, they got that on lockdown. Nice. But, uh, <laughs> but when you could really like go and bet the, I guess uh, like the Super Bowl props, you could go a week. The uh, South Point is the one who uh, does their risk management or lines. But like you could go to South Point here in Las Vegas and get all like the current numbers. And then you look at the sheet, which has no value in Las Vegas, but at Chinook, it was just like everything was still on it. They just didn't move anything. Yeah. I mean, it was just no you one could, betting. You, you could there? just bet the board like a hundred, you could just bet the board like a hundred straight nickel uh, props on the Super Bowl and, and I guess, I guess no one now, does it. Now, I guess now that I said that on here, they'll be inundated with sharps next year. But that was uh, that was a go-to play for this last. You week. may be overestimating the reach of the podcast. Um, <laughs> plus, I don't. There, where where is Chinook? You have, the, you have the sharpest listenership in the world. So even if only all five people that listen to this go, right? That's a lot. That's a lot <laughs> of uh, thirty thousand uh, dollar betters that they're going to get. Right. Like twenty twenty percent edges. Yeah. So when you were in Washington State, what was like the advantage play type stuff that you were doing? Primarily just counting cards, but this is in like 2003 and four. So you had all these weird casino operators and these casinos were like a bowling alleys and Elks Lodges and things like that. And the casino managers were like, so one of them used to be the waitress. Another one was like a bartender. So they would do all sorts of weird stuff to try to drive business and like, oh, uh, one of them put three jokers in the shoe. And then uh, they ran two promos. One of them was like two to one suited blackjacks, which makes the game a coin flip uh, off the top. And then another promo they had was they put a couple jokers in the deck, which also makes the game a coin flip off the top. So both were pretty good on their own. But then there was like one time every 28 day cycle that they would land on the same day. So you get two to one suit of blackjacks with a bunch of jokers in the shoe. And why are like jokers a, good in the shoe? How does a joker work in blackjack? If the deal, <laughs> well, 
really, you'll be shocked to know that a Joker in the deck is sort of a house rule. Um, I've actually somehow played multiple Joker blackjack games, and the, the way the Joker is handled is always a little different. But the thing that is always the same is when the house gets the Joker, they burn it. And when you get it, it's some manner of wild card. Like sometimes it's better. Sometimes if you get like a three and a Joker, they actually just let you have, call it an 18. Uh, a little, if it's, if they're a tighter Joker game, such as that could even be a thing, they might actually make it a real card. So you'd have to make it an eight with your three or something like that. So the Joker is uh, worth 15 or it's just worth something that gets you to 18. Like if you had a four, you would also get 18. I'm saying, oh, I would, the Joker can be treated different by different casinos. Like, obviously, there's no such... If you have a three and then your next card's a Joker, there's no such card as an 18. Uh, so the casino would certainly... Oh, they would give right. you they would give you black. They just, if gotcha. you got, like, three Joker, they, you just win. Okay. I or, thought you meant it was, like, 21. three, 15, 18. I got you. Three, 18, no, 21. No. Okay. The, this casino in Washington, you actually had to make the Joker a real card. But the, the reason it's an advantage is because if the dealer gets the Joker, they just discard it. And if you get the Joker, you can make it the best possible card. Yeah. I w I've watched, have you seen the documentary Inside the Edge, the one that follows the guy who plays blackjack in an RV? Yep. Is that reality? Is that like, how, do you, can you speak to that world at all from your early days card counting? Do you a, overlap with a, that world I, at all? Yeah, he was playing... Uh, he probably, that was shot probably a couple years after I was really playing full time. Okay. I've, I haven't played a hand of blackjack in probably 10 years, but I used to do something extremely similar to what he was doing. Uh, I didn't play as high, but I think the lifestyle was very, uh, very well represented by that documentary. Like that's pretty much what it's like. You drive around, everybody, I would tell people what I do. And all my family, you know, you get together and they're like, man, you must have some great stories. And you just kind of be like, no, <laughs> it's, it's not like Vegas vacation. You, it's, you spend about 10 hours driving through Oklahoma or Nebraska or some other, you know, dust bowl. And then you pull into a riverboat casino with like three tables and a bunch of hillbillies. And you kind of like play until they give you the stink eye. And then you drive to the next one horse town and like a bunch of casinos that nobody's ever heard of. Oh, I'm at Diamond Joe's Dubuque today. Like, no, there's there's no glamour. So how did you get involved in that world? That seems like such a strange occupation. How did you get there? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I was probably some level of like gambling addict slash math nerd uh, slash had available slash the only entertainment in the town i grew up was the casino so i really wanted it was like oh i turned 21 what are we gonna do and since there's nothing else to do we went to the casino and i didn't want to be one of the i thought slot machines are really stupid and you just put money in and then lose but tables kind of had that, that appeal of controlling your own destiny and maybe appealing to your intelligence or what have you so i definitely gravitated to that and yeah from there i mean we're talking 2000s so it wasn't hard to Google or search or find information about, uh, you know, advantage play or at least how to not be a moron. Yeah. So when I, you say like the slots thing, but there are advantage players that play slots, right? There are. What's I mean, in the repertoire of an advantage player back when you were starting? And like, 
has that changed now? Are they still doing the same stuff? Yeah, they did the same stuff, but it evolves. I mean, there was there were beatable slots back then too. I don't mean like video book. I mean like slots. It, it's same concept as today. Any machine that banks a jackpot, you know, a progressive of any sort, is going to be beatable at some strike point. It's really a matter of like learning what those are. And these days, it's so much more sophisticated as far as you know, getting information from the casino or the hosts or getting the par sheets or whatever that actually tells you what these things hold and what they give back. I mean, you actually make a lot of money if you have insider info, as it were. Uh, back then, it was like piggy banking and cherry pie where like the because where the slot machine would actually have like a hopper of coins on the top. And it was like you get five balls in the shoot and it pays you the coins. You just look at it like four balls and then the last person left. So if I get uh, two cherries, I like win you know, 100, 100 quarters or something. I mean, it's very low tech and not sophisticated compared to the kind of stuff you see now, but sure. it's still the same. It's still the same concept. I mean, there aren't that many new things under the sun that ever come around. It's just like trying to find the casino tries to find more technological ways to stop these things. And then the advantage players try to find new ways to win. The good thing, it's it's harder to get the edge, but when you have it, you probably win more because the casinos have more of a false sense of security that the technology is protecting them. Like you can't beat a slot, but then if you can beat a slot, you just like win a million dollars because they don't know what the hell's going on. Right. Yeah. So so did you get out of that game because it stop being as profitable or how did why did you transition into sports was it pure opportunity or are you just sick of grinding the advantage play lifestyle combination uh i i re i semi i retire i always wanted to kind of retire from blackjack i mean it's just like i said it seems fun until you're driving forty thousand miles a year and spending nights sleeping in your car or motel i mean you're really watching the money. It's not like the movies portray it. You know, you're not just like rolling around in $100,000 of cash and just like living this high life. You're not getting comps because you don't want them to know who you are. I mean, it's like Motel 6 and uh, Jack in the Box. You know, like you're trying to keep the expenses down because the margin's not that high. And uh, also, it, it's a lifestyle that might appeal a little more to you when you're like 24 years old and... You know, like traveling is fun and I've never been to these places and going out is fun. But once you're, you know, like 30, you don't really want to be doing this stuff anymore if you want to have like any semblance of a life in your future. Yeah. So how did you pick up? Uh, no, let's keep plus you, you, get, you, you sort of get forced into retirement too. I mean, the, the dissemination of information from the casino side has gotten so uh, good with technology. Like you go to some casino in Shreveport, Louisiana, and they tell you not to play. And then the next day you go to a casino in, you know, Biloxi or, you know, uh, two states over and they just have your picture waiting for you. Even if you don't tell them who you are, they've never, you've never played a hand there in your life and you get backed off in like five minutes. Uh, it just gets to be, it's a, I mean, it's a cat and mouse game, which might be enjoyable to some, but uh, not necessarily for me. And after a while, you get sick of it. 
you kind of stick with it. it. One of the problems of gambling is is you can make a lot of money to start with, but your resume goes to shit, and you don't have a lot of like career options. You get forced into this life of making fifty or six thousand dollars a year. As what can I do now? So you're playing like twenty five cent Deuces Wild at uh, Texas Station or, or something for your life because you don't have any other like great great options. But you like I can't go get a real job now. Uh, but I don't have enough saved because you can't, you're like max earnings potential from card counting isn't that high. So you just kind of live in this like purgatory. Yeah. doesn't sound, uh, you don't make it sound all that desirable. It's it's, it's not, it's not, it's good to get out. You can't just be super aggressive. It's definitely a new age of player who like tries to win half dollars in two years. Then they're all 24 years old and they have, uh, you know, options to do something with their life. These are probably reasonably smart people. And plus, uh, you know, time value money is super important too. That's why there's always these debates. Is it better to make $50,000 a year for 20 years or, you know, 500,000 in one year? I'm like, well, you want the money in one year because time value money is so important. And that was a concept that seemed to go over the heads of a lot of these uh, nickel and dimers. So how did you get hooked up with sports then? Did you know a couple of advantage players who were like, I'm betting sports, this is how it is? Were you also kind of advantage playing sports at the time or were you a total newbie to sports betting? Um, yeah, so I obviously I'm like a big sports fan going back to my childhood. And then I was in, into gambling. I knew of, I mean, I knew like just, what sports betting was. My dad bought me a couple like Oregon lottery NFL parlay cards when I was in high school. I think the statute of limitations has run out of him getting prosecuted for that. So we're good. And uh, yeah. And uh, I think I had like a can bet account, whoever the offshore of the day was. And I had like a hundred dollars on there. I was betting five or $10 on my God awful opinions for uh, uh, sports back then. But definitely not even close to resembling advantage play. Um, I got into it so people people I knew from the Washington advantage play scene uh, moved down to Vegas. They had a, they had the whole sports figured out, not from a handicapping standpoint, but from like a market capping standpoint. And this is obviously we're talking two thousand and three. So like offshores had net teller and sign up bonuses and books that had you know, no vig parlays or minus 105 or free half points days or anything else you could ever think of. So even though they couldn't handicap the way out of paper bag, you know, they uh, they were still just killing it with I think you know, numbers. There's 50 different sports books in Nevada as opposed to now where there's, you know, like two and uh, you could line shop. Pinnacle was still the answer key back then because they were available to the United States. And, you know, like you're getting plus six at Fandango Nugget and Pinnacle would have like plus five, minus 117. Like, you know, that stuff like that. And then part, I guess there wasn't a ton of heat on them yet back then. So they were having like seven figure wins on the parlay card scene. Um, so, I, of course, I wasn't involved. But I was hearing, I mean, I, a lot of my friends were working with this group and I was hearing of all their wild success. And I basically, they had a, 
I don't know, management disagreement or whatever you call it. But one of the guys who worked for them was fairly disenchanted with the way that they were run. And he wanted to do his own thing, but he didn't want to live in Las Vegas, which I can appreciate. And I was, you know, hanging out in Oregon by myself. And he's like, hey, want to go down to Las Vegas and you can do be the runner and I'll be the, you know, guy reading the market and you just go bet this. And uh, I was like, I knew how well they had done and I know how smart he was. And I like wanted to work with him and I wanted to be in sports betting as opposed to this other stuff. Like it's something I actually have a passion for. The lifestyle seems way more agreeable. Profit margins are huge. Like, I mean, yeah, sign me up. And that's, that was sort of my, uh, it's definitely my foray into sports betting was through that. And that was in uh, 2006, but I was just a lowly runner and there was no, uh, no great expertise on my when did you acquire the great expertise when did you start to like bet your own numbers or uh, not, make your own yet, numbers yeah. oh oh that oh it's like i still have expertise but i started betting my own stuff in 2013 the, the first heat spurs finals so 2013 gotcha and how were you and like moved, coming up with your Las number Vegas, there Vegas. What's that? Like you just started with the NBA Finals? What do you mean? You started with the Heat Spurs Finals? The... No, that was the that was this that was the uh, oh that was life, the year I, uh, that you started. Gotcha. Yeah, all major all major events in my life I tie to who played the NBA Finals that year. So oh, okay. that's how I know. <laughs> yeah, that's how I that's how I know like any given point in time. Okay, so what was happen. the like? Did you spend? I guess when you started betting your own numbers for the first time, you were like felt pretty confident and were firing and like day one of the NBA season, you were betting every game and stuff, or how did you like, when did you start going full time at it with the NBA? And was the NBA the only thing you were betting? Uh, WNBA as well. Uh, this way, essentially, yes. I mean, I was, I was screwing. I mean, I still had some like balances left over from those, you know, like, 2000 sports things that I was just talking about and I I didn't bet sports for probably three years well after, so after I did the runner thing I, I got this bright idea that like well now I'll just bet sports I mean this is so easy and of course I like didn't have any edge or any idea what I was doing so I quickly did off I don't know $100,000 or something and then I was like, well, this is stupid. So I stopped betting sports and went back to the blackjack grind. Um, but after a couple of years, uh, so I had moved to Arizona and was just, I just had like a big payday from something out there and uh, just hanging out. And I start watching a lot more sports and I still got these balances, you know, on some of the offshores. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll go back to my love of sports and betting and Maybe try to figure this out. And there was a lot of uh, research and screwing around with, you know, in-game betting and stuff. With uh, like I say, not a lot of money. Just screwing around with the balance I had on there still. And uh, you know, eventually it just sort of like hit on something that's working. Uh, but it was definitely not like I knew that I had a, an edge. And at that point, it was like okay, I don't have to go to Laughlin and uh, play video blackjack for $200 mailers anymore. I'm just going to start betting sports. And, you know, uh, I wasn't used to, like, really high stakes. I was probably betting 
500 or $1,000 units. Uh, but it didn't take long. Once you actually realize you're going to win or you are winning to, uh, to ramp that up to a much bigger scale. So, but if you're betting WNBA and NBA, I guess, how many bets are you getting off in a season? Were you betting like all the derivatives, first quarter stuff too, or only sides, only totals? Because you could, you could still probably yeah. run bad over a few hundred picks in a season, right? And easily and, lose. Sure. But this is, I mean, it's about like, I moved to Las Vegas. Uh, I didn't, you know, have these connections with uh, off screens or offshores or, or all that sort of stuff. So, for me, especially growing up the West Coast, the easiest thing to do is just, I'm going to go to Vegas. Uh, you know, at least you're guaranteed to get paid. And it's fairly straightforward to somebody who might be good at handicapping, but is knows very little about the market itself. And uh, now they just don't have a ton of derivatives here. It wasn't like I was going to be betting a uh, big volume on first quarters and stuff. I mean, I would if I could. But that wasn't, uh, at least for the first probably two years where my access to good outs was so limited, it was primarily, you know, uh, the bigger markets. I had, I believe, 520 bets in 2013 and probably 200 and some odd on the WNBA in a, in a typical season gotcha so is that like what was your strategy for betting this stuff was it i'm betting you know i feel like my numbers are really strong i'm betting every edge there is or were you more like i think it kind of seems like you would take like a a chunkier approach to sports betting that you may that you wouldn't just like have like when a scoot was on the pod he's like i have my number i just kind of trust the number that's what i do you seem like you wouldn't be that way are you that way or how were you approaching making the bets and stuff no i knew their number was bad they could this is a they couldn't make half totals in like 2000 up until probably 2016 half totals were just like horrible Half totals in both uh, NBA and WNBA, where it was kind of the same thing you were getting. Yeah, they were half the uh, half total was half the game total. That's just what it was. And if you want to know how wrong that is, just go look at a pull up an NBA any day, look at the game total, look at the halves, and see how far from half it is they are now. I mean, if you see a game total two twenty and the first half is one thirteen and a half, imagine that seven years ago is one ten. And just imagine uh, being on the correct side of that every single time. Yeah, it sounds like it could be profitable. It was insane. Like the, I mean, I I, I don't want to quote an ROI because I most people probably wouldn't believe it, but it was just ridiculous. So then, like every bet you were making, just, you thought had like a twenty percent ROI or fifteen percent ROI or something very very high. Uh, well, the only downside was that the totals weren't as high. Well, actually, the to- that was actually a good part. Uh, I can bitch about NBA variants later, but you know, back when total, back when like two hundred was a high total. You know, if the totals one ninety and they make the first half ninety five, when it really, or they make the first half ninety five when it should be like ninety seven. I mean, it's it's good, but it's not like sixty percent good. 
Gotcha. Uh, so then how did you, now, when, how did that go away? I don't, I, how would that not get away faster, you know? Because the people... Just no one bet that market for whatever reason? How were you able to get down on this market? It sounds like it'd be people, hard to get down on. It wasn't hard to get down on because... So, I mean, it was, it was still the same thing as now. Everybody copies. But the people that were kicking the shit out of these half markets were smart enough not to fire... The only relevant book is uh, Chris, right? Like, they make the number and then every other person copies it. So if Chris isn't losing money on first half totals, they don't have any incentive to fix first half totals because there's no problem. Gotcha. And the, the pioneers of this stuff, I mean, like Harala Bob and Spiro the Greek and the people who were, who already were like knew about these inefficiencies were also taking extreme care not to blow up the only relevant books. You know, they were getting down hundreds of thousands of dollars with Russian bookies and stuff like that and not betting the $2,000 book that is relevant. And yet, as this was getting like more and more widely known amongst people I knew, like, holy shit, these first half totals are awful. And then they were like, well, I'm just going to start betting a bookmaker because, you know, why not? Like, because it's really short-sighted and stupid. Uh, but well, also the problem was that the guy, it's sort of, I mean, a lot of these guys were farming out the, the betting, which I get, like, obviously I've done the same thing with using off screens and stuff. Uh, but the guys at the top are making a lot of money. But if you're a mover and you're seeing like, well, the guy I'm betting for is betting, uh, first half over 90% of the time. And, um, why am I getting like 5% of his bets. Why don't I just go ahead and pop the screen myself and make $2,000 instead of, in or in, in addition to, uh, the problem became, it was so easy for so many low bankroll, low information people. Like you didn't have to have these high-end models or huge bankrolls. You could just uh, figure out what the plays were and then just bet them on screen and, uh, it really became a case of once bookmakers started losing hundreds of thousands of dollars on these markets, they actually tried to make a good number instead of just not caring. And uh, it wasn't that difficult for them to, once they took a look at it. But it existed for so long because the people that were doing it were really, really smart. Gotcha. Yeah, it's amazing no one ruined it earlier than that. Um, I feel like that sort of stuff would never last a week today. <laughs> I mean, people would be just destroying it immediately, probably. Uh, you, you are correct. Uh, yeah, that kind of kind of uh, as the technology and the reach of things are semi-sharps out there. For people, I mean, again, it's two totally separate skill sets, handicapping versus betting. And you get people that can actually just like find great bets and right sides, but then they're going to, they hit $200 limit openers on screen. And you're just like, it's just stupid and short-sighted but they do it and it makes it really difficult if you're an originator trying to bet for scale. Yeah. Um, so how have you evolved? Like, cause now I'm under the impression that the NBA market is not like that anymore. So are you, do you do any of that stuff anymore? Do you like have all these angles that 
no one knows about still, or is it more like the market's a lot fairer? I had to totally change my approach. Yeah, I had to change my approach. I mean, the methods that worked back then, they don't work now. You can't just bet the same stuff. Uh, I mean, I still bet. Uh, it's not like it used to be. Uh, it's definitely more, you know, like, I don't want to be super specific as to as to what I bet, but I mean, NBA, WNBA, but, um, you know, more, more, definitely more modeling and trying to quantify the edges that exist as opposed to just like global mispricing. That's what I'd say. I'd say in 2013, the market was just like globally mispriced. And now it's fairly priced and you have to figure out where you can find advantage for the market at large. Yeah. So you had a famous tweet um, a couple years ago where you said, if the screen firing troglodytes were even semi-subtle, people like me wouldn't saturate the market with multi-five figures on the same thing. Yeah. Oh, do, you, do you care to explain like the, the thinking behind uh, this, this tweet? Yeah, uh, because... Let, let's say you, let's say there's like a, a, an injury update or anything that is the price of the game is going to hinge on one piece of information, a player being in or out, or you know, that would be the obvious one, but something like that. And you are the first in the market with that information. But if this isn't like, oh, that I have an in with the trainer of the team and I know that Durant's out tonight with a sprained ankle. It's like, it's something that, let's say you follow a really obscure writer on Twitter and he says it. And so my point is you have a piece of information that is not in the market yet, but it is solvable by other professional bettors. Uh, what you want to do with that information is obviously bet as big as you can, but you want to start with the most obscure outs because once you blast Pinnacle and Bookmaker, like if I'm just sitting there staring at the screen, kind of daydreaming because nothing's going on, like as soon as I see a move that isn't based on anything that is perceptible, my spider's senses start tingling, right? Why the f Why did the total just go from... Why did it just go up two points with nothing happening? So I'm immediately going to try to find out what just happened. Because I, I don't think that's just like, oh, it's a really sharp group popping it. Like, no, there's a reason for this move. And I think on the case, actually, I know on the case of that tweet, it was something like that. You know, I wasn't following this specific game. But as soon as I saw the screen flicker, and it wasn't even, it wasn't like the screen went black. It was like bookmaker flashed. And I looked at that and I go, something's up. And then I like immediately hone in on that game. And like two minutes later, I know exactly what's going on. And then I'm just like, well, fuck this. And I hit every single book in sight. Gotcha. <laughs> so if you are the first with this information, don't just bet it in the most obvious spot that other sharps in the market are going to be like wondering what's going on. If he, if they were busy betting at some obscure out, like nobody would even see it. Interesting. Are they worried maybe that they're only going to have a minute, like literally 60 seconds. So they just have to go as fast as they can. Don't have time for that. Or are these more 
like 10 minute edges or hour long edges? I'm going to say it's a case by case basis. Some of them are going to be very low key. It depends where you got the information and the basis of it. Like I said, if it's uh yeah, if it's, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski tweeting something like you have five seconds because everybody's going to see that. If it's you're following the guy from the uh, Decatur Post-Gazette and he just told you that something relevant happened with the polls, like you might be the only person that follows this guy. And therefore, you might have a five to ten minute advantage before, uh, you know, the Chicago Tribune uh, says something about it. And oftentimes it won't be that he's the only person who knows. He just might be the only person who said anything because not every beat writer tweets every piece of uh, information the second they see it. Right. It's just it's just like what what is the nature of the information and how obscure was your source? I actually had something like that um, accidentally. Right when I first started trading options out of college, I was working at a firm and I was not managing any capital or anything. I was just kind of like sitting there doing nothing. And I followed um, this woman who was the chairwoman of the FTC, like the Fair Trade Commission or something. And yeah. she had, you know, a thousand followers. Her name was Edith Ramirez. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I happened to follow her. And she tweeted mm -hmm. out that the FTC was investigating LifeLock, which was in... Uh, they like try to protect your stuff or whatever, you know, like they sell old people, like we'll protect your passwords with LifeLock. <laughs> it's, you know, $14 a year. I forget what the exact business model was, but something like that. And the FTC was going to investigate them for you know, predatory practices or stealing money or something kind of shady because it's kind of a shady business. And I looked at it and I was like, well, that sounds bad, but like, I don't, I don't really know what LifeLock is. And especially when you see stuff in the market, like it doesn't last for long. And I mean, sports are the same way that it's almost like if it doesn't move, you don't believe it. But then if it does move, you can't bet it. So it's like difficult. You really have to know your stuff. And at the time, I just like had no idea what was going on. And I didn't even really manage any money. So I wouldn't have been able to take advantage. But I'm pretty sure that like eight to 15 minutes later, lock, life lock, it was down like 40% or something impossibly insane. It was a material, like the company might go bankrupt from this FTC fine or investigation. Um, yeah, I think about that all the time. It was like, if someone who had known what they were doing had been following her, you could have legit made like $50 million, $100 million, like infinite amounts of money, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh but that's where this first uh, the first tick on the you know somebody sees like why is uh, LifeLock down a dollar? Exactly. Uh, then once there's a big news. print or something, it's like oh, okay, what's going on? Um, and then yeah, she, was banned, she was banned. She was banned from tweeting right after that because they were like, this <laughs> obviously cannot happen. We don't want these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, it was such a crazy thing. And I yeah, just no one watched it because it was this random woman, and it's a tiny little stock. You know, no one really pays attention to it that much. Um, yeah. So does that still happen today where you will see people doing stuff that you're like, oh, my God, why are you such an idiot? Or like, I. Oh, yeah. How often does this happen? Like once a week, okay. every day, once a month? No, because there's not going to be actual information that frequently. But I mean, it still happens. It happened like a month before the, the lockdown. Part of the problem, though, I, you are. I probably sound a little old man yelling at clouds. Uh, the efficiency of the market and the, the spread of information 
it's not like you're going to get an hour to just casually bet this stuff. Um, you do have to move fast. Can't say that it's stupid to, um, you know, bet your hour with a you know 10% edge or whatever. Um, so I, I sort of, I just think some of these guys are still just not at all sophisticated and have learned absolutely nothing. If, if they were, but you know, part of the horse has left the barn. If people were smarter five years ago, you wouldn't have to do the things you have to do now, but it's, it is shit and opportunities aren't as, uh, a, a part of it is fighting over the same scraps. You know, when there's a, when there's tons of money and tons of edges to go around, everybody doesn't freak out when they see something really good these days, like, Oh my God, uh, a 60% play comes down the pipe and it's, you know, uh, a breeding frenzy, eating frenzy to try to get down on this because it's like so rare that everybody just wants to bomb. I mean, I didn't bet it. I didn't, I myself didn't bet it Chris for like a couple of years, but these days uh, I'm not going to like pass on it to preserve the market because the market's already destroyed. So uh, I'll, the only reason I will pass on Chris is because I'm still trying to hit other numbers. But once I've hit my other outs, I'm absolutely going to hit Chris. Like, why the fuck not? If I don't, somebody else will. Uh, and I'm not worried about them, like, reverse engineering my account. They already know I win. So who cares? Yeah. So how fair, like, right at post in the 10 minutes before post, how often are you betting NBA sides? Because it seems from your tweets, sometimes you're of the opinion that NBA sides can be very, very wrong. I mean, you had one tweet that was semi-cryptic saying like there were three games and these were the three lines. One of these is a 10% plus edge and it was for infinite money because it's an NBA playoff game or something. I don't remember this specific tweet. Uh it was so cryptic that I can't decipher it. <laughs> it was some, I forget which one it was. I don't even have it in front of me, but it was something like a Rockets versus Warriors or something. And you were like, the line was at Rockets plus eight and then at Warriors pick. And the next one is like oh, plus yeah, yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. One of these uh, is a 60% bet. It was something like that. Yeah, no, that wasn't, no, that was actually straightforward. Uh, because if you just look at those lines with, I believe like with no, uh, if you just looked at them, I couldn't tell you which, if like two of them are right and the other one has to be wrong. Like they couldn't be, uh, they couldn't all be right just the way that they're, they're priced. Like one of these had to be wrong. I would say, I, I talked about this on, on uh, Whale Cappers pod. Like the general consensus is that the playoffs, you know, because the market's so big is so sharp. And I was like, I would really retire from regular season betting about the playoffs because the playoffs, you actually do see these public money and you will get mispricing based on like a pub hysteria, which never happens regular season. The, the Bulls and Nets regular season game has no, no public action. Nobody cares. Um, but a playoff game have public money. And in the run up to tip off, you will see drastic overruns or mispricing or also there's the other big edge would be that people just don't know to like quantify injuries. Uh, people overreact to bullshit. Like the, I mean, the Toronto golden state series would be the obvious example. That was just like so serially mispriced on a game by game basis. And, uh, 
you just see stuff like that in uh, in big. I feel like you see in the small regular season market. I, I don't think you should be fading line moves or betting two minutes to post on regular season NBA sides unless you have some very elite information. Those line moves are like universally sharp. But in the playoffs, it can just be a totally different story. So like, is your approach for oh, yeah, play- playoffs, playoffs and regular season? Are those like different it, it approaches fundamentally? About, like, it was about what you said earlier. Like you're af- almost afraid to bet because you feel like you're missing something. And you'll see uh, a line start moving like uh, an NBA side will go from like plus six to five. So like a really big percentage move 20 minutes before tip. And you're like this. I mean, it's the there's no load management. There's no they're just taking the night off. It's a it's an NBA playoff game. All the variables have been known since the end of game one. And all of a sudden, 20 minutes before tip, here comes the avalanche, the freight train o cash. Uh, yeah, you can you can feel free to fade that. That's just like people are turning on TNT and listening to Charles Barkley and getting in their bets. Uh, that's but like how does that manifest itself into the market? Because like if the line goes from three to because four, they or whatever, but then doesn't don't you just hit Chris? That, that is not before? that is not the whatever today's equivalent of Billy Walters is moving that line. Like if that's a regular season game, it's sharp. If it's a playoff game, that's nothing. Like who cares? You're just getting value on the other side. There, any anybody who, there was no information that came available. Uh, or there's no variable that changed that wasn't available two days. I mean, there's three days between games. The, the notion that like there was just this uber sharp money that was sitting out and some somehow the line was off that whole time and never moved. The one thing I learned, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to wrong side or to preserve good numbers early in days. And it's just a fool's errand. You can't keep bad numbers on the screen for any amount of time in the market these days, because there's always some, uh, nickel bedding dipshit that will take it. And yeah. for me to think that like some number was just sitting 5% off for two and a half days. And now uh, it's moving on this great sharp money. It, uh, it doesn't uh, pass the smell test for me, but you do have to, I mean, obviously like when you see these, the first thing you're looking for is a late scratch or something like that. But once you see the coast is clear, uh, I consider those bets to be em- or those that steam to be eminently fadable. Gotcha. So, would you say that your bets in the playoffs are bigger usually? That you're both able to get more down, and the edges can even be bigger. I would say yes. I'd say it works out that way. I, I don't know that it's by design, but that. De- it's more just a, an avail. I mean, it's a it's a liquidity issue that you pretty much just can bet you want, and then a little bit. I probably just get carried away, you know, like you know, right. just, just click, just click for a big number is kind of fun sometimes. Um, <laughs> the only downside is then you kind of end up with like this disproportionate amount of action on a smaller number of games. I mean, obviously you can lose or run bad when you're even even in the craziest of postseasons. You're you're not talking more than you know, a dozen bats. 
Also, and I should point out, you know, we're talking about like the old uh, home teams down 2-0 in the first half stuff, uh, you know, where it's just like, I guess that would fall into the bucket of global mispricing four years ago. And now, like, not so much, but you can still fade some, I would actually say sharp money on those on those spots. The spot being that people will bet on the team that's down two to zero at almost any price. So they're, it's a good value well, to bet so, on the team yeah, leading. Well, I mean, originally, so like five years ago, home teams down to, oh, there was no adjustment in the market whatsoever. So you could just get them at the regular price. And then they, they did too well. They went like 28, they went on like a 28 and two run. And then you have like Fezzik and other dipshits tweeting about it and you know, the action networks, like what's the best bet in sports. And they would just like, you know, once, once it gets that well known, there's no, there's not much you can do, but right. it was sort of funny in that you started getting these sharks, the game, the, the spread for the game is minus three and the spread for the first half is minus three and a half. And you get sharps like that can't possibly be right because it makes no sense. And it's what it's like really hard to exactly pinpoint what this situation's worth. So they're like, I'm going to take the plus three and a half because it's too much value. And all of a sudden it would open something. I, I remember I even tweeted one. There was, I believe it was minus. It's like minus two for the game and minus three for the first half. And like, the sharps come in and take the plus three for all the value. And it ends up settling. Like the game was minus two and a half and the first half was minus two. And I'm like, you know, just bombs over Baghdad on this first half minus two. Cause it's still no value relative to a normal spot, but it's obviously good in this two O playoff spot. So Interesting. You would, get you would get overreactions from sharps taking that value. There was a um, so, there was a cryptic yeah. Brett Favre tweet from 2018 where he claimed that he had um, like half a million dollars on an NBA first half side during the playoffs. It was like Golden State plus a half. Maybe that's what you're talking about. Could be. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure the exact uh, situation. Yeah. But Golden um, State would have never been. No, Golden State never been down 2-0, But if they were up 2-0 and he was taking them. You know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the 2-0 thing. I think it was more like there was something that he claimed he had a ton of money down on a first half NBA. So maybe that's something where there was someone like you who thought you had an angle on it. And or, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. Okay, it, are the markets, how would one get down that much money on an NBA first half if you wanted to bet like 500K on an NBA first half side? Does Pinnacle like ever get blue circled for 50 grand and you can rebat or does matchbook or like, can you ever get huge volume on these sorts of weird things? Uh, Pinnacle does go blue circle. Uh, definitely not to uh, like that number. I've seen Pinnacle blue circles to 20 on half totals. Probably wow. 50 on a, on a half side. Okay. So maybe if you were spacing it out throughout the day and you kept getting resistance from the market for whatever reason, maybe you could keep repopping. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that they might go, you know, blue circle uh, 10K 
until an hour before tip, and then uh, uh, bigger. But as always, the problem is these blue circle wars. This is you going head to head with some other big money sharp, and that's not necessarily the spot you want to like get all your money in. Did you ever stay away from blue circles or something? Because you're like, I think I have edge, but I'm just going to stay away from here or are you just kind of trusting the numbers and firing into everything no definitely uh i have curtailed my blue circle battles i would say this is one of the things i changed a lot if i were to go back in time like six years i would say more i would tell myself to have more respect for the market fading myself like you would, you you'd constantly, you, I mean, you, so let's say the, the second half total is a hundred and like, I bet the over only well, three things happen. The market agrees, the market is neutral or the market fades you. So, so let's just say I, I hit every book I have over a hundred for one unit, whatever, whatever that is, like I'm okay. not spending all my outs. So, and then I go back to the first book and I see what's happened. Now it's one one and a half. So like after I bet it moved and then somebody else came in and bet it again bet my same thing and it's like gone away um so now it's like 101 and a half or 102 across the market so okay the market other sharps agree with me like that that play hits like 60 percent. it's just the stone cold nuts the problem is there's nothing you can do you can't go in for like another round of bets because it's just like if you had a great bet now it's nothing and the the alternative was you hit everything and then you go back and now it's 100 again like somebody is betting against me and in that spot, I would be like, you know, giddy up. I'm in for you know, another round of bets. You, know, I, you can't repop everywhere, but anything I can hit again, I hit again. And then you look and the person fades you again, like sweet. So what would happen? And that play is probably a coin flip. I mean, even, let's say I'm the sharpest guy in the market, which you know, I'm not making that claim. But even if it were true, maybe I'm hitting 51% or 52% on that. But I'm, you know, I'm still losing to the vague. Uh, the problem becomes on your plays that were the stone cold nuts, you get one X unit. And on the plays that are a loser to the VIG, I have three or four X on it. So even though you're not going to lose it, you're still going to come out ahead because you're, you have a 20% ROI on the, on the nuts and a minus 2% ROI on the shit bet. But you just are taking on so much variance because 80% of your action was on this coin flip level bet um, right i mean i just i those plays were not big winners for me I, I i don't have it broken down by like uh bets by resistance metric but i definitely know just like anecdotally that the plays where i was really getting it was you could definitely draw a, a slope of volume on any given bet to win rate and like the bigger the volume, the lower the win rate. Because the only reason I was getting that volume is because I was facing market resistance and players are facing market resistance. Even if you are betting really strong plays, you know, uh, you're not getting market resistance because the other people are stupid. And those plays were not anywhere near the winners of, of, the, of the plays that you couldn't go back for a second round. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... So now are you like, have, have there ever been times where you hit it over a hundred and then it's a hundred and you hit it again and now it's 99 half or something. And you're like, 
what am I missing? And you've figured something out that you were missing? Or has it always kind of been like, I feel like I'm missing nothing, but the results just aren't very good for whatever reason? Yeah, more the latter. Um, definitely, if, I mean, we're talking, a second half, you don't really know. There aren't that many variables. I mean, especially if you've been like watching the game or have the information of the game available. Like, no, no guy got injured or something like that. Um, then you're really confused. If it's a first half and I'm facing that resistance, I'm immediately going to pump the brakes when it moves against me because, like, I don't feel like this makes sense. There's got to be information that I'm missing. Which could be something like some players who's good is going to play 20 instead of 30 minutes or something. Uh, absolutely. It's, like, going to be something information-based. That you uh, won't really I... know ever, really. Yeah. Well, when the, when the game starts and you see the uh, star player sitting on the bench in street clothes. Oh, well, that would be an extreme one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. of course, I'm, you know, I'm trying to isolate on like an extreme example <laughs> that, that's obvious. But yeah, something like that where you go, oh, okay, now I realize that I was the idiot when it came to this particular uh, war. Like, in, I mean, in a second half situation where you are just from, I mean, if you've been paying attention, you know that there wasn't a, most of those second halves where there's a really strange move, it's because uh, a player like sprains his, sprains his ankle or something. Although with in-game betting, that's not as big a deal. You definitely used to. I remember even back when I was, you know, like square sharp, I was watching a Sonics game in my in my living room. I was hanging out. I'm watching, and like Ray Allen uh, twists his ankle a minute before the second half, and you know this is like nine o'clock Pacific time. Nobody's Nobody cares. It's some, you know, Sonics-Hawks game that nobody's watching. And I just happen to have it on. Ray Allen goes to the tunnel, and the sideline reporter's like, oh, yeah, he's out for the second half. And they tell you this, like, you know, seconds before they go to halftime. So, you know, I'm just like, well, I got to bet on the Hawks for the second half. The Sonics don't have their best player. And that was something that wasn't reflected in the second half line at all. Uh, these days, you're probably not going to be able to uh, get good spots like that because there's going to be like 35 tweets about it the second it happens. So are you betting the first half, second half, full game stuff kind of all day, every day during the NBA season? Or are you just like in your room or on your computer all the time? There, There's mostly, it's like two phases. You definitely want to be there for the morning set, you know, like the openers, the early moves and that uh, when the when the limits go up, that sort of stuff, and then you want to be around probably two hours before tip. Uh, so for the four o'clock games, you know, you want you definitely want to be around your computer or starting to gather information at like two o'clock because that's when the breaking news stuff. Usually, nothing really happens between ten a.m. and two p.m. So if you're looking to, I don't know, go to lunch or run an errand or just uh, zone out, that's the time to do it because you may miss something here or there, but having that four hours of your life not consumed by staring at Don Best is like well worth the value loss of one piece of information. Yeah. Um, how do you keep up with the information during the day? Is it mostly just like scanning Twitter feeds and reading news or do you have like a network of people that are like you're sharing information with? It seems like it'd be really it, hard to both, stay on top uh, of it a all. Lot of Yes, uh, it's both uh, a lot of like scraping and automation and like uh, throw throwaway Twitter accounts that like specifically are following 
you know, one or two teams and just like having 30 different tabs open at a moment's notice, um, all that sort of stuff. But then, um, I know like it used to be you, you, uh, like all the, what's it called? Daily fantasy was like the best information for these injuries. Uh, they were like unwittingly providing, uh, the info to sports betters. And then, uh, you know, like a whole network of people on your on your chat groups and stuff that would be sharing that similar information. Sure. Usually, I mean, you would you, you hone in on a couple of key guys, like either, you know, a coach that's notorious for, uh, you know, the load management, you know, like obviously if the Spurs are playing a back to back, you're going to be on red alert for Popovich sitting somebody uh, randomly. Um, and then, of course, anybody who's listed as probable, questionable, you know, you're just like waiting for that. So you kind of have it, what teams or coaches or players you're, you're really honing in on. But that's why I said earlier, you know, those aren't going to lead to the big edges because even if you see it, somebody else is certainly going to be looking for it too. And you have to get down really quick um, unless you have slow moving outs or runners in obscure places. Uh, that's not that actionable. It's when you're just sitting there not really paying attention and the guy from the Palooka Post tells you that uh, like an actual in- interesting piece of information that's where it's just like a huge edge uh, and it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, you just don't want to miss it. So what do you think you're like the main reason you have edge betting the NBA right now? What would you like um, attribute it to? Is it because you know a lot about the NBA specifically, you have a really good modeling knowledge of the NBA info knowledge or is it more like advantage play type stuff? Is there anything you kind of think is keeping you at the top of the game or keeping you beating tough big markets? Um, uh, at this point, it's probably more about... I, I think it's more about situational knowledge than it is about... Um, modeling knowledge i think there's just so many people that can make a a number that's power rated fairly accurately knowing knowing the power rating difference between the trailblazers and the kings is not difficult but it's still i think in the nba most of your edge in in this era is just going to be knowing it's not you're not you're not betting the Lakers against the Suns. You're betting the Lakers playing a third and four nights with a road Sega Baba against the Suns on a two day break. Like those are the teams that are playing. It's not Lakers Suns. It's the situational Lakers against the situational Suns, and knowing what those situations are actually worth, and also definitely individual player value. Um, you'll see players get injured or scratched, you know, a load management and the market will just like respond irrationally. This guy scores a lot of points. Therefore the total goes down. Uh, even though he might not, he may have a high points per game, but if, you know, when you use his advanced stats or, or know more about it, you'll actually know that this player is uh, more like neutral to the total points and the two-point crash, just because he's a 25-point-per-game scorer, is not warranted. Uh, two, you know, just a, a, a random game where both teams are on, like, full rest and playing their full roster. 
uh, I just feel like that's going to be priced accurately um, always because it's just too easy. So are you like kind of not even spending any time on those? Is it more so you're looking at the schedule for tomorrow or circling spots on the schedule? Like, I think this might be a potential mispricing. I'm going to be ready to potentially fire huge on it more so than just I make the price for every game tomorrow and we'll see what's wrong. Uh, essentially, yes. I, I, I actually have, like I say, it's, I don't have like a tab that is, this is the power rating for the Clippers. It's like, I have a Clippers home power rating, a Clippers away power rating, a power rating on a back back, a, you know, what is the likelihood of Kawhi Leonard not playing tonight based on, you know, uh, Doc Rivers historical usage rate. I don't, I actually don't, I, I heard you talking to a scoot and it was like, do you, do you just shave their minutes to account for it? I actually don't. I just have two separate numbers. Like Kawhi Leonard plays 32 minutes or he plays zero. I don't try to split the baby with like just giving him 20 minutes because that's just not going to happen. Either he plays, he's awesome and he plays a lot or he just doesn't play. And those two spots are so different that I feel like blending it into one average number is a huge disservice to yourself trying to uh, figure out what this fair line should be. Gotcha. Um, okay. So, so, so yeah, the edge is really just, you know, what is the difference between a Lakers at home on two days rest and the Lakers away on a back to back? Cause those are not the same team, even if you know they are the same team and treating them the same is insane because one of them is like vastly inferior to the other. Gotcha. So the NBA market might still be a little bit behind on some of these weird situational analysis. They might not be fully getting it right. Whereas you think you're kind of getting it fully right. And then on the more normal games, you kind of agree with the market and let it go and no big deal. Yeah. I would say, you know, a, a spot where the teams are, you know, on both on rest and not apt to be uh, load managing anybody. And there's not a ton of variables. That's a game. I'm just not really looking to play. It's a game where you might want to be, again, there's always going to be edges available when you have the good information or you find out something has changed, but it's definitely not something that I'm going to be awake at uh, seven in the morning, uh, isolating that game because it's just like a low value target. Right. And definitely. Like the night before, I mean, you know, you, you look at the schedule well in advance, you know, where all these spots are that have historically yielded edges. And then that's where you're going to be really looking to bet. You're not, you know, uh, I'm just saying the schedule is known, you know, the whole year in advance, you know, where these, situations are likely to come up that have yielded edge before and that's what you're going to be really honing in on until two hours before the game and that's when you're more focused on the information aspect of the handicap let's say you make the total 217 on just some random game tomorrow it's just a totally regular game nondescript and the market's 222 and a half are you you mentioned earlier that bad numbers don't stay on the screen are you ever able to get them or do you just not get them because you're asleep in Vegas, you're waiting for bigger limits, you don't want to ruin the market? Like, are you ever getting those numbers or not really? No, I seldom get the, unlike something that just opens bad or is bad in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of like a normal good sports bet. Like there was kind of an off number and you saw it and then you got a little CLV and just kind of a regular bet, I guess. No, I'm I'm much more likely to pass the two twenty two and a half, and then I'm gonna get like, I mean, if I can bet a couple thousand on two twenty two and a half, or I can bet 
you know, five times that much on under 221, I'm just going to wait for 221. Gotcha. Um, and so what time are the... I would say uh, the problem is when it opens 221, which is like an edge, but it's not amazing. And then it's 219 when you wake up and you're just like, there's nothing to bet. You feel a little stupid for passing on it. Uh, I'm just also playing my part. I, I don't want to be the one that uh, destroys numbers just from a, uh, I don't know, just from the standpoint of the kind of person I want to be. And uh, I don't really care if I, if I pass a couple thousand dollars on a good play to not be the biggest dickhead in the, in the market. Gotcha. Um, so you had another cryptic tweet about some uh, NBA totals. Um, you mentioned one time that an NBA total got steamed 12% the wrong direction because people didn't know where the game was played. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Uh, yeah, uh, it was Boston and Milwaukee. And I think it was their last year in the Bradley Center. And they were doing like some Bucks heritage nonsense and so they played a game at the mecca which is right next door it was their original arena in milwaukee and yeah like these uh these semi sharps didn't realize that it was a different venue and so they were like betting on the game based on like the regular specs of the bradley center and not the mecca and yeah they just like were making horrible bets and why was the Mecca Center 12% different than the other one? I'd rather not say. Oh, gotcha. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so those sorts of things. Now, is that like a once-in-a-lifetime thing? That's something that is like so, so wrong? Or does that happen more often? Not Maybe not 12%, but stuff kind of little things like that that you might be able to take advantage of. Um, well, that was a case of the number was fine, the betters were wrong. And I don't know that that happens very frequently. Uh, usually right. it'll just, usually it's a case of like the posted number is fine and then the underlying aspects of the game change, like an, an injury or something along those lines. And uh, that's what causes a number to be wrong. In this case, the information in the market was bad and caused people to know wheelbarrow money on a terrible bet um the number itself is fine right um okay and then one last cryptic nba tweet um before we move on to something else this one about apparently, apparently all i do is uh cryptic nba tweets but yeah it's kind of your brand i guess uh you, you <laughs> mentioned that there was actual money wagered to bet the first half under 96.5 on a game 204 half total. Oh, yeah. So what? So what is in the mind of the people that are betting that? You seem to imply that that's a crazy thing to do, but they did it nonetheless. So what, like, what were they doing? This is a case of understanding something being good situationally, but not being able to make a number. Like, okay, so it was kind of like an angle, and they were just betting so, so under at any price? Yeah, like, so the total is, I was 204. Um, so this is something where, like, in 2013, the first half total had been 102. And as you can see, like, that would have been several points off. So, um, but in this case, like, yeah, the under is certainly good at 102 or 101 or 100. But it's basically a pass at, like, 99. It's not just, there's no play that just is good no matter what. <laughs> and they're betting, I guess, under... 
just, I'm just going from the context of this tweet. I guess they're betting. I guess there must have been. It must have been sitting 96 and a half and then steamed under. And I just thought that was absolutely insane because there's simply no way that that's ever a good bet. Yeah. Does the total ever come down? Like, could you get us? Like, which moves first? Could you get an instance where it's 96 half and 204 half and then it becomes like 96 and 202? So the way that Pinnacle, they are tied to each other. So if you bet one, the other will auto move in conjunction. Okay. So they think they've kind of uh, figured out the lockstep, although it doesn't sound especially hard to figure out. Right. Yeah, there was definitely a, uh, a an auto move. I believe at, I may have this wrong. Somebody could just correct me if I'm an idiot. But there was definitely a case where, like, if you, at Bookmaker, if you bet the half total, it did not move the game total, which is, I think it's generally correct because I think they got burned on the first half totals much more. And so they were a little sharper as far as just, like, respecting first half totals independent of game totals. I think if you bet the game total, the first half total moves in conjunction. And I, I believe that's probably the correct way to do it. That, that's how I do it if I was uh, myself. Gotcha. Um, okay. Do you want to talk at all about any crossbook stuff? Have you ever done any crossbooking? I have not. Okay. Is that a thing that happens amongst high stakes betters in the NBA? People are like, let's just, instead of blue circle, give Penny the vig. Let's just go at it each other. Do you feel like you know the major players in the NBA market that aren't you? I do. Uh, I honest at the you know at the high stakes and amongst the high stakes community, um, you're not going to a you don't disagree that often, and b I don't. I mean, yeah, you don't want to if if you're just on the opposite side, then sure you want to cut out the bookie and and you're both getting a better bet. But you know, to a large extent. I don't, I'm not out to bet against other betters. And so I'm not like looking for these spots. If one came up, I'm not, gonna, I, I, if it came up, I'm not going to like, I'm not saying like I would pass on it. I'll, I'll take no big over uh, minus 110. Yeah. But it, it's not something that like, it's not, common. I can probably, I can count on one hand the number of times I've just like flat out had a, a, a wager on the opposite side. It has happened. Um, also, it happens more when you're working with like movers. I've definitely had one where like I told a mover that I wanted, you know, one side, and he said, "Oh shit!" One of my other groups wants the other, so he just you know like booked us against each other for no vig. And right. in that case, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Some like nameless faces entity, and he just has both. It's like, why am I? Also, from his perspective, you know, it's going to be like not practical to bet both sides in the same book. So he's just like, he's also he's basically playing matchbook at that point and just like matching up uh, two of his clients. You know. Yeah. What is the main way that you're getting down right now? Do you use? Pinnacle bookmaker matchbook, or is it more places in Vegas or through a mover, or you have your own off screen accounts? Um, what, like, has that yeah, changed uh, a lot over the years? I, the NBA limits are yeah, so big, maybe it, I think that's 
probably different than most other sports, right? It's changed over the years. Um, definitely. Like, so like a couple years ago, when there were still really solid edges to be had from bad pricing, I was definitely like using movers and off screens. And uh, to me, all that mattered is volume. Uh, there was, there, it would have taken a very large number for me to not want more. Uh, these days, most of my betting is here in Las Vegas because I, you know, I'm only betting a, a substantially lower volume than I than I once was. And so, even though the Vegas limits aren't anything to write home about, uh, you know, NBA sides you can still get plenty. Even on totals, it's not bad. And then I have a handful of like off screens and stuff, but, but I'm managing it myself. I'm very rarely going through, you know, like movers or things like that. Um, mostly it's things I, I manage myself. Uh, if a, if a, you know, I mean, I still have these contacts. It's like a, a super good play comes down the pipe. Uh, I can definitely uh, pump up the volume if I really need to, but for like my day-to-day -day betting, uh, it's mostly just uh, stuff I'm doing myself on uh, my Vegas apps, or yeah, I do have my own, uh, you know, like credit outs or op or offshores things like that. Have you tried other sports besides basketball, or have you always just bet basketball? Uh, I can't say I've bet a lot of else profitably. Uh, NFL for sure, but that's you know I'm I'm not like betting NFL sides on game day. Uh, you know, it's obvious stuff, long teasers or correlated parlays in college football or, you know, just like math-based stuff. Uh, I, I can't claim to have any handicapping acumen when it comes to football. And then I don't even bother with baseball. Baseball is just like uh, well beyond my ability or I'm just indifferent to the sport in general. Yeah. And like pricing baseball is not something I, I've ever cared about. Yeah. How do you think that this NBA season will be different than a regular season? Are you anticipating it to be a ton different to where the approach totally changes? Or it seems like the way you approach it, it might actually be, it might be perfect environment for you where maybe the usual algos people use aren't quite as applicable. It's almost like every game is a unique special situation. It's either going to be really good or really bad. Um, like summer league, if so, the environment could be like summer league, which would be great because I, I really had success betting the summer league uh, the last two years. But part of the reason the summer league so good is because nobody really cares, and it's one of the only situations where you can actually bet some money in Vegas relative to like everywhere else, which is not the case in every other market where Vegas offers nothing because it takes place here. The books will actually put up lines because, you know, there's a lot of degenerates that go to those games and want to bet on them. Um, so the en the environment's fine. I've, I've bet a lot of weird-ass basketball games in weird-ass basketball leagues taking place. You know, like the court is surrounded by cars with their headlights on. It's <sighs> like I, I, I bet on this game in Africa once. and What? I mean, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? What, what was, game in Africa? <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a Olympic qualifier. It was like Uganda versus the Central African Republic or something. And somehow I found this game on a, on a streaming service. I probably got like 30 viruses on my computer, but I really wanted to watch it. And yeah, the gym was, I mean, I don't think they were playing on wood. And 
it was like indescribable what how the, how this game was being played. I couldn't believe they were, I couldn't believe that they were like booking this game. So how do you get down on that game? Who was listing it? <laughs> it was just everywhere because it was an Olympic qualifier. I mean, we're talking like I think my total volume on the game was like fifteen hundred bucks. Okay, um, gotcha. But when you when you when there's when the day when you have ten Olympic qualifiers in a day and your edge on that bet is probably ten percent, like uh, ten thousand dollars, ten percent edge for like five hours of work. Uh, okay, I'll take it. Yeah, not bad. Um, I'm not I'm not so much concerned about the environment. I think I think it could be good because I think a lot of people are going to not want to bet it because it's just going to be so weird. Um, but I've bet a lot of weird basketball. But is that even possible? I feel like when you look at how Korean baseball is done and even like league of legends and stuff, I feel like people are going to be so desperate to bet on something that the volume will just be bigger than ever. It seems like I can't imagine the NBA volume is low, but I don't bet the NBA and you do. So you'd probably be right. (laughs) I just don't think it's a middle ground. I think it could be really good. I don't have high hopes though. Also, as I said, most of the edge these days is situational related and a lot of that. I mean, there's basically going to be no situational advantages. Everybody's there's no travel. There's no home court, uh, you know, like all the variables are stripped away. So you're just going to have sort of this uh, true value of the teams. I, I can't imagine there's going to be a ton of load. There's going to be no load management in the playoffs. Maybe they're in this really lame eight game restart um, i don't know i i mean, we i guess we still haven't even seen detail we seen, there's no schedule there's uh there's still a lot of details left to be worked out i don't know if it's gonna be any good or not and i think that a lot of the games will probably be properly priced but if there's this pent-up gambling demand it could be like those playoff situations i mentioned where you could just see like really weird line moves based on very little because links nationwide now and the uh, desire to bet on this is going up the charts and you depending upon how aggressive the books are uh, you might find good spots especially if you have places that move on action or move slowly you'll probably have some pretty good bets so have you been doing anything in the last few months while your days have been free related to sports betting like trying to get ready for stuff or are you just you know taking it easy doing nothing yeah, uh, mostly done nothing. I haven't bet on. I haven't placed a wager since the shutdown. Uh, no Korean baseball. No League of Legends. No Madden Sims. <laughs> uh, I have. I have surprisingly been able to restrain myself from from these bets. Definitely, I think if I were to give like one piece of advice to somebody, what to do if they wanted to. Uh, not like a high-level player, but somebody's trying to step their game up, is definitely to use the time to go over your data or models or anything and, and fine-tune them while you have this opportunity. Because uh, the bookies do the same thing. There was a league that will remain nameless that was globally mispriced in the exact same manner every single game up until earlier this year. I mean, I have been betting this particular sport if it's even a sport, uh, for like three or four years, because every single game, it's just, they were priced wrong. And all and they had a break, their, uh, their typical seasonal break. And then they came back uh, after their off season, and it was like fixed. 
And it was obvious that, I mean, I was, I was probably the only person relentlessly max betting this, this sport uh, for years. And I mean, I was winning fairly uh, handily, or at least the, uh, the stakes weren't that high, but the ROI was insane. And the books didn't care that like this guy is just winning a, a gross amount of, uh, of his bets. But once they had an off, because you know during the season they probably just this sport so obscure they didn't care. But then once they had an off season, they probably go into their uh, metrics and they're like, "Wait, we're holding negative money on this sport." And then they just look at my sheet and see like, "Oh, he bets the same thing every single game. We've probably been fucking up on the on the pricing of this." And then when the sport came back, the edge was just eradicated overnight. And so if the bookmakers are willing to use their two months off to fix the numbers of a $250 really obscure market, it's definitely worth it for people that are trying to step up their sports betting game to really like hone in on their numbers themselves and make sure they're like chip shape. Yeah. I mean, it sounds... Sounds logical in practice, but it is very nice to just do nothing every day. <laughs> or you can do absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> that I, I would say most days I've spent doing nothing, but I have definitely spent some days where I, I really was like sat down and got out like all the data and went through just to like see what stuff's looking like. And, and sometimes it can actually be really eye opening when you're betting every single day, uh, all day, every day. You know, you're you're just putting a lot of volume through you you kind of miss the the micro scene through the macro and uh when you actually start looking at very specific things like like holy shit uh this is not even winning why am I... uh there there were definitely some things that I, that I saw that were fairly eye opening that I actually missed in the day to day that not feeling the urge to bet every single day uh really allowed me to look at and realize that this is probably a waste of my time. Interesting. So you had a tweet. We'll do one more cryptic tweet after that incredibly cryptic story um, about. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start following my own Twitter. I'm curious <laughs> what, I, what it is. I actually say um, this one is not so cryptic, but do you want to explain you one time posted a tweet about how um, someone wouldn't want to get CLV if they were a top sports better. Um, I think most people get it, but you maybe want to expound that. Yes. Uh, so this is what I was saying earlier about the, the pioneers of, uh, of NBA total betting being smart. I, I actually was like talking to Haral about it. And he was like, I've never taken a payout from, uh, from bookmaker in my life. It's, and I was like, how is that possible? I was like, because I'm betting the wrong side before close to make the, I want the closing number, the number that gets recorded by everybody that keeps track to show no edge. Also, because like a lot of these uh, credit outs will determine whether or not you're sharp by how you close, which is like interesting. Uh, you can be up a million dollars, but if you're betting under a hundred and it closes a hundred and a uh, hundred and one, they just think you're square. Like this was the sole trick that a lot of the big time outs would use. So it made sense if you had 
you know, multiple six figures on your side to just bet the opposite side five minute post and have shitty CLV and everybody who looks at your account thinks that you're a square. And then, um, you know, every Monday you're just like collecting a sack with a dollar sign on it and they just keep thinking that like the tide's going to turn. So many, and you see it on, on sharp Twitter, you know, everybody's like, what's your CLV? What's your CLV? What's your CLV? I, I think that's really fine for a nickel better or an obscure market better where you can't do anything to crop the market. But in like a big, where you're, where we're talking like six figures of volume, why would you want good CLV? You're, I bet under a hundred and it closes 97, uh, that out is dead soon. But what I can, jerk myself off about my CLV. I don't want CLV. I want money. Is that possible today? Because you've said that bad numbers don't last on the screen. And you even said that you yourself will hit bookmaker on stuff. Cause why not? Like, is yeah, that sort of Haralabob so. strategy even possible anymore? I don't think so. Yeah. It seems impossible. Unless, uh, the, the, the only real way it would be possible is if you are, somehow god moding like nba sides if you just have some way to if your model or abilities are so good on something like an nba side or or even total and you have and you have the outs i mean if you can bet $250,000 on nba total and your totals are so good that even the market number is wrong relative to your number and then you can just go ahead and pop in 10,000 five minutes before to not get uh, faded because you're not betting like some stupid market inefficiency. It's just your number is so awesome. Then it would be conceivable. Uh, I just don't know how many of those people actually exist. Do you think that there's zero or more than zero? I'll say more than zero because I feel like if I say zero, I'm boxing myself into being wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, there's somebody that's going to listen and who's who is doing that and just think I'm an idiot. I, I don't like to deal in those that level absolute. But let's say I wouldn't be surprised if it's zero. I know that in 2020, it's possible to just develop numbers that are so good that you are hitting 55% against the market closers and nobody else can replicate what you're doing. Yeah. If someone were to be doing that, what do you think like their sort of approach to the game would be? Like if that person exists, what do you think that they look like? I think they're really good at modeling. Um, or, you know, I could actually be wrong. I was like, maybe, but maybe there's so many modeling resources these days. Maybe the way to go is like some sort of subjective handicapping. Like a, a lot of the reason I got into the NBA is because I'm just an NBA fan. I've been watching this sport religiously since uh, you know I was ten years old, and like part of the some of the good edges I've ever had were just things that I sort of intuitively understood from following the sport so closely, and you know having something of an encyclopedic encyclopedic memory about a lot of this stuff. Like I can I could like probably recap the nineteen ninety three NBA playoff series by series, game by game, just from memory. And like having this level of knowledge that's totally useless, but in the context of what you're witnessing, like you just kind of notice these same things occurring. So maybe this uh, God mode handicapper, if they exist, is just somebody that 
sees the game at such a high level, you know, like the number flying by their eye. They're just like living in the matrix. And it's something that a model just can't possibly capture of their understanding. Yeah. Um, but you think that, and then you find out that like Charles, you know, you think that like an ex player would probably have a grasp on these things. And then like Charles Barkley is the worst gambler in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know that just like an encyclopedic knowledge of basketball or a coach. I was thinking, you know, like maybe a coach or something who just like knows how, you know, understands the game. Well, wouldn't, yeah, maybe it seems would like that wouldn't. Yeah. If like I could work with Brad Stevens or something, wouldn't, we be right. really good at betting because he is able to make his team do different stuff. So he would probably be able to notice just like fundamental. Yeah, like with, stuff, with right? Brad Stevens crush NBA betting just based on his uh, knowledge of basketball and what makes good plays and bad plays. Uh, maybe, but I guess he makes $10 million a year to coach, so he doesn't care. <laughs> and I, I think that too. And then you watch the pregame shows or whatever, and every coach they have on there just seems like such a drooler that I'm like, I would definitely happily book uh, every single uh, expert uh, coach they ever bring on these shows. So I don't know if they're just playing dumb for the audience or what, but they definitely never strike me as people that are just going to like crush yeah. uh, pinnacle on NBA. It seems like Brad Stevens would definitely not be able to win betting, but like he might have this sort of insight that you know, a professional better might be able to unlock and be like, oh, you see this, you see this, I can incorporate that into my numbers in this way. There might be like some info from someone who had a ton of knowledge about the game like that. I mean, it sounds like from the descriptions of Haralabob that that was semi his approach to the game, right? That he thought he was very strong at figuring out what teams should do and would do and how effective their strategies were from like a fundamental basketball point of view. Of course. Uh, any, any anything that he he claims about like having some big edge modeling is ninety nine percent bullshit. Uh, his edge, his edge was definitely from uh, understanding the game and seeing uh, relevant things unfolding and like betting it. Uh, it was it the the ESPN story about like the Ewing and the and the pop and like these thirteen different uh, dimensions of compatibility or whatever. I <laughs> mean that was like. I had very little to do with uh, his winnings, but uh, the winnings were legit. The the gambling Twitter legend that he like got rich from selling Wager Street or whatever is just total bullshit. He won like literally. I'd say his group was responsible for like nine figures of uh, winnings in the NBA. So anybody who tells you otherwise is wrong, and I have no reason to say that because I have no allegiance to him whatsoever. But yeah, that's that's the uh, lowdown on that. The final word on Haralabob, if you will. The final word. If anybody, <laughs> if anybody on gambling Twitter tells you you got rich selling Major Street, they are talking out their ass. <laughs> um, do you have any opinions on how he's done with the Mavericks? I've asked a couple of guests this before because it seems kind of interesting, like trying to merge the sports betting world with the actual game. And you know, sports bettors think they're a lot smarter than the people running the teams or coaching the teams. Um, but is that? Does that seem like it's true? Do you think Haralabob is doing like one of the best jobs in the NBA? Do you think that if you were in charge of a team, they would be quickly better? Or what do you think about that sort of interplay? Um, I don't think I could coach a team. Uh, I 
think I would be value added to a front office, but I don't think that I would just be like, okay, uh, put me in the front office and now you're the NBA champions or anything. Uh, yeah, more so maybe you like just come in to help. Like the team stays functioning as they already are, but you're like the guy who just says what he thinks and people listen to you because they're I, told I, to. I, do you think you'd I be think, able to help? Like, hey, guys, why are you doing this stupid thing? Are there a lot of stupid things that NBA teams yes. do? Yes. I think there's a solid 75% of teams that could just use a person to stand there and go, don't do that. So how uh, do they not think, have that? I think they do. I think your problem is that the organizational structure, the org chart is kind of so big that you might have any dissenter doesn't have the power to overrule. Like if you're the Spurs and you're like, I think we're going to go ahead and bring in uh, LaMarcus Aldridge and Rudy Gay for our uh, 2020 season. Like, this is fucking stupid, and your team's going to suck. But if Greg Popovich wants these guys, then that's going to happen. Who in the organization is going to tell Pop that he's wrong or this is dumb? And I'm going to just go ahead and imagine there's – or, you know, the Knicks bring in Phil Jackson, and he doesn't know what he's doing – but he's Phil Jackson, and they just brought him in as the savior. So even if you're uh, a quant, a younger guy who understands that his methods uh, have been obsolete for a decade, uh, if what are you going to do? Get in a power struggler? Are you just going to keep? You're probably going to go ahead and chime in, but then he's going to ignore you, and then you just keep your mouth shut. You're not going to like go to war with the top guys in the in the organization. Because from your standpoint of self-survival, it makes more sense to keep your mouth shut and let the team lose 60 games and then watch your boss get fired and maybe you move up than it does to go toe-to-toe with them and then you get fired. Um, so, yeah, what's the incentive if you're a really bright person who knows that the organization's doing something asinine? Gotcha. So maybe it makes sense that the Mavs would be the team to get Harrell off because Mark Cuban, you know, has a brain, whereas many of the other owners might not have brains. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I mean, if you're making, if you're willing to bring him in, like obviously you're open-minded and you're probably going to go ahead and give him this authority and your, your whole organization is probably going to be on the same page as opposed to like, yeah, I mean, if the wizards brought him in, what underneath, uh, you know, some of the troglodytes they had running the team, what would be the point? Because... But he wouldn't have taken those jobs either. Like, it has to be the right spot. That's why the teams that are... That's... This is a lot of why the bad teams stay bad and the good teams stay good. You can give the Kings the number, you know, a lottery pick every year, but when they have an incompetent owner and an incompetent general manager, uh, it just it just doesn't matter. And, and they can't sign a, a big name free agent because it's Sacramento. They just don't get better unless they somehow get like the number one pick in a LeBron James level draft. So you mentioned that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of 90s NBA and, and you passed then. What are your thoughts about Phil Jackson? Do you think that what like percentage of the success of the Bulls can he be awarded? Or if you think if Phil Jackson switched with some other coach that coached the Hawks at the time or something, some mediocre team, would he have had success with the Hawks and the other coach, would they have not had success with the Bulls? What are your thoughts about that? Because I've never really followed the NBA closely, but Phil Jackson just like seems so, so, so stupid and like so absurdly lucky and nonsensical (laughs) that 
I feel like he just has to be the luckiest man ever, and he's not a good coach. But then people talk about him like he's a god, and they're like, oh, well, even if he doesn't know basketball, he was able to manage all the personalities. And I just feel like that's one of those things you can only say after the fact, you know? Like, sure, yeah. but... Uh, but anyway, what are your I, thoughts as someone who actually knows what he's talking about? Yeah, so this is a, this is a good one because I would say maybe it's a low key. I think most people grasp. So like, a, I think it's more. I think there's more parallel to college than people necessarily think. I, I, I'd say coaching involves game management, like the X's and O's, but then there's like running a program as well, and like Roy Williams may not be a good X's and O's coach, but he's good at recruiting or, you know, whatever example you want to use. Like, Brad Stevens is the best strategist in the game. Like, if, if we're playing the aliens for the fate of civilization, I want Brad Stevens to coach the team. Um, but if you're trying to build a program, that's, like, a kind of a different skill set. And Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson was the right guy at the right place. Could you have taken the, the 1996 Hawks coach and won with the Bulls? Like, probably not, or maybe not. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, their team was so good that it might not matter. But no, Phil Jackson would be a, a footnote in history if you were coaching uh, most other teams. The thing, Phil Jackson was the guy you wanted if you had the best players because his skill set was managing egos. His skill set was not coaching the game. And was that something that was known before the fact? Like, when he first started coaching, was it like, oh, the reason Phil Jackson's going to be a great coach, the reason we got to have him is he's going to build a program? Or did people only say that after he coached Michael Jordan? I think it's probably a lot of the uh, after the fact. I mean, he was, he was an assistant coach. Doug Collins gets run out of town. He's just kind of there. And then the team just wins a ton of games, so there's no incentive to get rid of him. And then they're winning championships, and so, of course, he stays. I'm not saying he's a bad coach. Sure. He was, he's the coach that was needed. But if, if like those, those Celtics teams that are making these Scars finals weren't that good, it's that they took a good but not great team. And then when you have the best in game coach, you can reach a, an extra level. When gotcha. you have the best players, you don't want to coach like the Bulls didn't win shit before Phil because the coaching, what you need when you have, Michael and Scotty, or when you have Shaq and Kobe, you need to manage those egos because they're combustible and everybody wants to be the alpha. Like you have elite talent, but it can blow up. Not every coach that has elite talent wins titles. And Phil was absolutely an expert in wrangling the, the high-level talent egos. Uh, X's and O's wise, he's not the best, but I guess when you have the best team, it doesn't... If you have the best team, you just want it to not blow up. Like, roll out the ball play the game, and you're going to stand a really good chance to win. If you have mediocre talent, you need a, a strong coach. But you see that in college all the time. Uh, Duke and North Carolina and Kentucky don't have the best X and O's coaches, but it doesn't really matter. If you're coaching a team in the Missouri Valley Conference, like you want a guy who can just X and O uh, your team to its maximum potential. Are there ever instances in the NBA where a coach might miss a game for whatever reason. He's sick or taking a day mm -hmm. off or going to visit family or something where do lines ever change drastically? Like, could, is there a coach in the NBA today that a, like news comes out that he's missed, he missed the plane. He slept in. He's not going to be at the game uh, tonight. Would the line ever move? Would that be a spot you might look to bet? Is that a thing that happens frequently? 
Uh, earlier this year, Popovich uh, missed the game. And I was actually like super excited because I was hoping there would be some sort of market overreaction. Uh, but there really wasn't. It, it's, I think the market doesn't care if a coach misses a game because they haven't as between the what a coach does in any given game is just kind of so irrelevant. Like their assistant coaches are going to have the same mindset, and the players know what they're doing. And like a regular season game against the Hornets isn't any sort of like big deal. Uh, definitely, if uh, if an elite coach was like, you know, if, if um, Rick Carlisle just like retired before the first game of the season, you might see some shift downward on Mavericks uh, futures or season wins. Uh, but I don't think that like Rick Carlisle missing a regular season game against the Pacers is going to like cause the Mavericks to suffer a big like move in the market. Nor should it, for that matter. Okay, so like on a game-to-game basis, they're mostly interchangeable? Yeah, like I think if you just had me coach an NBA team for a game, it's like not going to matter in the long run, even though I wouldn't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Most, most games are decided by, you uh, know, like 10 points anyway, so the coach doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, like what is, your, what is your necessarily duties in that game? Uh, calling timeouts or designing plays, uh, that sort of stuff is, is just not that big of a deal. I think it's more an NBA team, the value of the coach is like more the structure they have in place, the schemes that they run throughout the course of the season. Uh, like a team running the triangle offense in 2020 is going to win like well, they're going to win it a Nixian number of games, as we saw. And uh, a team that's running something modern is going to fare much better. Yeah. Do you Have you ever bet college basketball? Is that something that's too small for you or too much to keep up with or overlapping with busy it's times the in the NBA? Okay. Yeah, it's the overlap. Uh, I, I just, NBA is already so intensive for me that adding in, you know, like a, however, however many boarded teams are in college basketball is uh, going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think, what is like the future for you? What are your goals in sports betting? Are you just trying to, you know, keep running up some money, keep doing the same thing you're doing, or are you looking to get out, move to something else, or just hoping to run good? What's kind of your like thoughts on the next few years or the next decade for Spoon? Uh, I don't think I'm going to be betting much longer. Like, I mean, I've drastically, I, I said I've drastically uh, downscaled as it is. I probably bet more just as a, uh, to make some money and kind of as a, I, I guess, I guess calling it a hobby is, is definitely not accurate, but it's not, you know, I'm not having uh, multi six figure swings in short periods of time these days, like, uh, like I used to. I'm definitely, I mean, I'm almost 40 and just kind of like, you know, I actually went to school for finance and I'm far more interested in like real estate markets and financial markets and things like that than I am gambling for the rest of my life. Um, So yeah, I, I would say definitely transitioning more to like, sometimes it's just nice to have some fixed income coming in as opposed to like, well, uh, today I have a hundred thousand dollars less than I had yesterday. <laughs> it, that the allure of that grows a little less as you get older and as you have like family 
home ownership and lots of uh, lots more responsibilities in life. Yeah, makes sense. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think we should, or anything interesting we could talk about to close here? I've got a um, question from SV Better. A question about oh, NBA okay. rules, if you gonna, want. I, I was gonna. I don't know uh, how your microphone is picking me up. I've chugged five glasses of wine so far, so uh, <laughs> I'm really relying on you to ask questions. Example. Okay. Um, okay. So SV Better says, "Well, this is. I don't even know if this is that interesting of a question to do. Um, we kind of talked about this already, anyways." Um. What about, in terms of, you mentioned earlier, like if you can get off a ton with a Russian bookie, um, these guys were getting a ton with a Russian bookie. Are there sorts of like quasi weird outs like that, that people who bet the NBA seriously are using? Is that more predominant in the NBA than other sports? Um, what, is, what do you know about like that world of these, you know, kind of huge whale accounts type thing? So the huge whale accounts are like always going to be something that gets bearded into through a legitimate loser. Every one of these accounts I've ever heard of is, you know, some, some guy has, I, I, you're always obviously going to get like a credit account based on reputation. You know, no, no bookies is going to set you up with a six figure credit limit. If you just coming off the street. So these are like established accounts with some idiot who's just, or some whale. I don't want to say they're stupid. That's been, you know, just losing money. And then somehow they get hooked up with a syndicate or a sharp or something like that. And, uh, you know, some unwitting bookie who's been collecting from them for years. And now they have some insane limit. And all of a sudden, you know, they're betting uh, the sharpest bets in the world. It, it's and if they're not and the numbers suddenly and they're like not closing uh the numbers are closing bad and it's the same stuff they've always been betting. And now this person's just winning. It's going to be extremely uh, slow for that bookie to want to cut that player off. And that's where you can just get into some truly monumental scores. Um, but every one of those accounts I've heard of, well, I, I myself have posted some like $20,000 plus tickets from MGM. And I've gotten so many PMs like, how are you getting these limits at MGI like 20,000 on a NBA half total? Because that's how do you get that? And I was like, because most advantage players can't fathom betting $3,000 hand at Baccarat to get $20,000 limits in the sports book. Um, I realized early on that losing $10,000 a year to them in the casino to beat them, they didn't track sports the same way they tracked. Uh, casino play so I would lose $50,000 here in the casino and they just thought I was the biggest idiot on earth and meanwhile I'm winning like hundreds of thousands of dollars from the sports book and the sports book is forced to take my bets because they're getting overruled by the casino manager who thinks I'm a, uh, I'm a moron and like the throw away a penny to make a dollar mindset is so foreign to most advantage players advantage players are the biggest nits and nerds on earth and <laughs> They so frequently don't see the forest through the trees. And uh, this is like the least likely group of people in the world to, to spend a penny to make a dollar. And I was like, I'll, I'll happily spend 50000 to make 250000 And uh, maybe it's just at a scale that it doesn't matter to most people. But for the volume I wanted to bet, 
um, yeah, it, it, it was one of the, it was a big edge that revealed itself to me uh, very quickly that I think most people never would have thought about. Is it how does the sports book not figure out by now that you know what you're doing in the sports stuff? Oh, they know now. Oh, they know. Okay. So that the, sort of thing. The way over. the casino corporate culture hierarchy works is that the casino manager is the boss. He is he holds over the sportsbook manager. So the sportsbook manager is like this guy is uh you know whatever our highest tier status, and he wants twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars on basketball, and he's he's a big winner. And the casino manager says, well, he's down $50,000 playing slots this year, so I don't give a shit. Gotcha. Ben, the casino don't... manager wants me to keep betting slots and Baccarat and UTH and doesn't care about the sports bet. And the sports book is overruled by the casino management, so they just have to take the bet. And, um, yeah, inexplicably, the people you're beating... Uh, get overruled by the people you're losing to. And it's pretty much just like a big inefficiency in the management structure of the casino. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I mean, I get what you're saying, but the casino manager in this instance would have to be very, very stupid to be making this decision unless his comp was just from your volume or something and he like knows the casino's losing money and he doesn't care, but... That seems like it's probably I, I not the case. The way the break, I think the way the breakdown works, because the your sportsbook play is not tracked through the same system as your casino play. So if you won $50,000 in the casino, they probably should have brick. Um, if you win $50,000 sportsbook, they don't care. Only the sportsbook cares, but the sportsbook is somehow doesn't have the power of the casino because uh, just the way they're structured, you know, they can't. The sportsbook is an amenity. Most of these giant casino corporations don't particularly care. And so they just don't give these sportsbook managers the autonomy to back off a Noir card holder or a Seven Stars card holder. So the sportsbook's hands are tied. So you basically have like free reign to bet what you want to bet for fairly insane stakes. So when you go up to the counter and say, hi, mm -hmm. here's my card... Um, the casino manager said I could bet $20,000 or $50,000 or something. Is the line the same? They're like, okay, here's our line, go for it. Or do you say like, I'm betting over? Like, how does that negotiation work? Do you get a different price? Do you just get whatever price they have on the board for whatever limit? Yeah, you get it off the board. I never had them fuck with me. I never, I never had them do the, you know, like, oh, I bet uh, plus five and then it comes back plus four and a half. Like, no, they just take that. Interesting. And are the people who are the sports book managers over there or the casino managers there, who are these people? Are they like, you know, fat 60 year old dudes who like wear a suit and walk around the casino? Yep. Okay. So they're not exactly <laughs> the, the sharpest bunch. I mean, they know you, the, the casino management. So, I mean, I know I'm not going to hide from the sports book when you're betting those stakes. Like they know who you are immediately. Um, it helps to be, hey, it helps to be nice. Uh, I'm, I'm always cordial to the sportsbook people. Uh, and to the casino management, you're just the name on a report, and they pull open your report, and they see that you've lost uh, six figures in your lifetime gambling in their casino, and they're just like, we don't care. Okay. 
he wants to bet more. Why is that bad? <laughs> like, is that a rolling that? thing? Like, do you have to constantly be playing Baccarat to keep it up to date? Or can you just like lose 50k once and then have this forever reputation where you can get whatever limit? Like, how does that update? Yeah, I guess I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I try to be somewhat uh, sporting about it. I'm not trying to, like, uh, grind this to the penny. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, to answer your question as fairly as I can. Gotcha. So you're... I, I mean, I, I think if you just went in and played once and lost, you, you're not going to just be, like, the casino VIP. They kind of want to see some repeated... Idiocy. But also, you know, when you lose that money the first time, you can come back for a shockingly long amount of time on free plays and junkets, you know, like, uh, I mean, you can live pretty high on the hog off of your original loss. Um, I mean, I've, I've uh, been in their stupid uh, slot tournaments, Baccarat tournaments. I've had, I've been in the suite for like the gold nights in the conference finals you know like i i mean i've got probably six figures worth of free play and kickbacks from them uh just from gambling too you if you can't break your original loss is definitely going to be uh legitimate and substantial but after that if you can't break even uh you probably just don't belong in a casino anyway and then your gambling action is you know you lose fifty thousand a year but you get fifty thousand dollars a year back from them and then you just kick the shit out of the sports book and you pretty much get away with it. Like in perpetuity. I don't know if it stops now. I, I haven't been down there. How aggressively can you use this? Like I'm a high roller thing. Can you show up and try and bet a college basketball extra game for 20 grand or will they only let you on real sports, big market sports? It's kind of very little. I did. Uh, they, they were, they did hold to their house limit on Super Bowl props. I tried to bet bigger than house limit on Super Bowl props, and they told me no. But you can definitely bet bigger on fairly stupid stuff. They don't offer WNBA, which is a little bit annoying because I thought that was going to be like a, a big edge. But I'm just talking about specifically MGM. I mean, I know that all of the definitely win Caesars, uh, any place that has a big casino operation and like it's sort of known for high rollers. Oh, one time I was at Win, and uh, the guy in front of me, he spent it. He bets twenty thousand on an NFL total. Hey, this is like ten years ago. I don't even remember what it was. Bear, let's say it's the Bears and Lions. He bets the over, and he's yelling like, "I want to bet more. Can I bet more?" And they're like, "Sure." He's like, "You're not going to move the line, are you?" And they're like, "No, we'll hold the line for you. No problem." It's like let's say it's over forty-one. And it was the exact same thing I wanted to bet, and I'm right behind him in line. So I walk. I'm like, "Okay, I'll take that game over forty-one." And they move it to 41 and a half. And I'm just like so excited to think about when that guy comes back to the counter and sees that they move the number half point and how pissed off he's going to be. But it just goes to show you that like my limit as the sharp reputation is 2000 firm. And then if you are a degenerate pit player, like uh, 30, 40, 50,000, whatever this guy wanted to bet, it's just like no problem. Are there a lot of losing players that actually do this? Like guys who lose a hundred grand in the casino and then lose 300 grand betting sports. I don't think it's that the sports losses outstrip 
the casino losses. It's that it's that most just play. lose a little bit doing sports that every once in a while, and they just want to keep it's, them it's happy. That they don't. Yeah, it's just that they don't care. The guy loses a hundred thousand in the pit, and he went to the University of Texas, and then he wants to bet on the Longhorns game tonight. Uh, and you know, if he's betting ten thousand a hand of Bakra, well, he wants to bet twenty thousand on the game. And the sports book's like, well, we don't want to take twenty thousand on Texas versus uh, Iowa State basketball, but like to keep this guy happy, sure. They're they're gonna stretch their normal limit uh, because the pit guy wants to bet more on some obscure sport. It's just not a big deal. The, the sports just needs to cover their ass. If the sports book manager's like, well, the casino manager told me to take it, then they don't really care. That's that's really what it boils. It's, it's not that the sports manager is happy to lose. It's just like, well, they told us to take it, so we take it. I mean, what do I, what do I really care? How do you see the, the future of like the sports betting high stakes marketplace evolving over the next five to ten years? Do you think that in five to ten years things will look mostly the same, like off screen accounts, some Vegas stuff, a few big market makers like Pinnacle and Bookmaker and Bet Online? Um, do you see like any changes or is there any stuff that can't last much longer or do you think it'll kind of look the same? I think somebody's going to, well, I guess it's Circa is going to try to take the space in the market of, we want to write as much action as we can. And that's pretty much all we care about, which has definitely been like what Circa has publicly stated there is this model to beat, and I think that makes sense. There's way to, if you're going to be like William Hill or Euro book pussy clone number 30, uh, I don't see what your space in the market is other than, I mean, you might be profitable, but it's not going to be any, anything exciting. There's definitely a place to be had if you're the uh, person who's willing to take big bets and trust the competency of your traders to allow you to make a lot of money. Is Circa, is that something that's like been smooth sailing the whole time, booking so easy that they're just printing money or have they run into like, oh, we weren't as sharp as we thought in this and our limits are too high? Do you know about that? Or I, I, it seems like they're still doing oh, great because uh, they're uh, offering uh, big limits. Yeah. I mean, a little bit. I, I, some of it's probably off the record, so I don't want to say like everything, but I feel like they're fine with losing money on stupid shit like XFL because, I mean, well, part of it, it can't just be every, you know, everything isn't equal. You have to have a good management. And obviously Derek Stevens is like, okay, with taking some lumps in year one. And that's probably not an autonomy you're going to have if you're answering to a ton of shareholders or publicly traded or something like that. Like they want to see profit and growth every quarter. And it really boxes you in as far as taking some chances. But if you're a, a privately held company and your owner's like, sure, we might lose money in year one or we're not going to beat every market, but we just want to offer and we just want to write. And in five years from now, we're going to be the biggest in the market. Um, it has to be a top to bottom thing. It's just like we were talking about the Mavericks. You know, it has to be top to bottom. You can't just have incompetent leadership and then hire a really sharp fourth level manager because he's just not going to have the power to run things the way he wants. It really has to start at the top. And with them, it does. 
and it's probably going to pay dividends in a few years. But are they going to beat XFL and NASCAR and things like that? Probably not. You have to be okay with that. Yeah, makes sense. And I was just talking to a guy who works at a, at another uh, casino monolith here, and he was complaining that like the management there won't let them. You know, they wanted to book some of the more obscure stuff during the shutdown, and the management's like, no, because we only get sharp action on, uh, you know, third third level Brazilian soccer, you know, whatever they've been playing lately. So they wouldn't let them book, and, and I'm just like, yeah, it's so short sighted. Are you going to? Are there a lot of sharps that want to bet Nicaraguan basketball? Sure. Are you going to win money booking Nicaraguan basketball? Probably not. But the recreational player who wants to bet a sport that goes off at 10 in the morning for 20 bucks, well, guess who he's going to bet with when NBA or baseball or football come back? Like he's going to bet with you because he doesn't have 13 different apps on his phone. He has one. And losing, you know, you use limits to manage it. You give the Sharps 200 or 300 or 500 or whatever it is that makes sense relative to this market and the amount of money you get from the squares. And then when the big seasons roll around, the Sharps don't beat you and you still have all of that deposit-only money coming from the squares that's just going straight to the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're doing a great job. They post a lot of markets and I'm kind of amazed more people don't try because it seems so easy to, um, to be a bookie. <laughs> but I guess it it's the same easy. casino manager thing where maybe the people just aren't really well-informed well, enough that, to take advantage. Well, now that, that's a tweet I do remember when I said, it's amazing how many of these casinos are, you know, like you have a casino license in Iowa or Minnesota or wherever, and now sports betting is legal and you just have this license to print money against your uh, average customer who's, you know, just this pent up demand, they're dying to bet on sports and these people have no clue. And your big play is let's lease our space to William Hill. William <laughs> Hill will pay us. William Hill's going to pay us a thousand dollars a month to put a counter in the corner of our casino that has, you know, however much foot traffic every month of people that are dying to bet on sports. And you can't come up with anything, a better model than being a William Hill outlet. Like I would, I feel like I could make, uh, millions of dollars a year just booking this myself and you guys can't find a way to make any money uh, doing it. It's just insane that how risk averse and uh, just fairly stupid a lot of these people are. They don't, they don't realize what the profit potential is. And maybe they see the reports from the industry as far as like how low some of these sports but profits are and don't realize it's more from mismanagement than it is from lack of opportunity. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess you wouldn't know because I remember um, when I used to follow Dave Tooley of you from Vegas, he would tweet out the like uh, monthly revenue numbers and the sports book is just a tiny, tiny portion. You know, They probably make more in slots in a day than they do in a month at the whole sports book. So maybe they just, yeah, don't pay any serious attention to it despite the fact that you could make a ton booking with no brain and you could make everything booking with a brain right they're relying on the established numbers from the people who generally don't know what they're doing and not looking at the possibilities and i, and I will say i mean it makes sense i understand a lot of the the appeal of turnkey operators in like las vegas uh having the overhead to run your own book at 
over sevens is probably fairly stupid. Uh, but when you're talking some of these untapped markets, uh, like I would just, I mean, yeah, I would just kill to be an operator in 2020 with uh, app technology and things like that, having the ability to book commercially to the entire population of Colorado out of a, uh, you know, just a little tiny corner in a sports book in Blackhawk just, just seems like such a great opportunity. And yet yeah. most of these places don't have the stomach or ability to do it themselves. So they just contract out for some like fraction of what they should be making. Yeah, definitely seems like a missed opportunity. Like being legally allowed to book is the greatest gift in the world. Well, yeah, why can I, why can I go on to like some two-bit site, uh, PPH out of Nicaragua, and a guy will take 5000 on a WNBA total, and then I go down to, uh, I mean, I don't want to say they're doing it wrong, but, you know, like Westgate will take 500 and they're the biggest sports book in Nevada. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, why, why is Vinny uh, taking 10 times more than you guys? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Um, any last topics you want to talk about? We've gone over two hours here. Is there uh, anything you didn't touch on that you want to say or anything you said earlier that you want to restate or any more cryptic stories? <laughs> no, I, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's all I got to say. Awesome. That, this was great. Thanks so much for um, coming on the show. I feel like a lot of good info, a lot of uh, good NBA talk and, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when the season restarts if it if things are crazy or if they're so normal because everything's so uniform every day. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think it'll be boring. Honestly, I'm not. I'm not excited. Yeah, I mean, my, a previous guest um, said that he thought that the first eight games might be crazy because home field advantage or home court advantage doesn't matter. So you might get teams won't be playing for the four seed or the three seed, you know, cause it's, it might be irrelevant. So you might get weird splits that um, could cause some issues. But then when you said it as, you know, if, if both the teams are trying and it's just the players are in this perfectly controlled environment, playing in the same place every day, it might be more predictable. I could kind of see it going in either direction. So probably be good I, I for think, betting. I think the eight game restart might just be so pointless there's there's no difference between the one and eight seed because you don't even get home court. So what if you're locked into a playoff spot? I have no idea what these roster. Why not play your G League roster or your summer league roster? I mean, yeah, exactly. You, you could see do? crazy stuff fall, like that. Fall a seed, falling a seed if it doesn't falling from two to three normally costs you home court, which is you know worth a, a substantial amount. And in this case, it just is irrelevant. So why why bother? I think the the way they did it's stupid, and the restart's going to be totally pointless and it's not going to be interesting until we get to at least like the second round of playoffs what would you change about it if you were in charge we got that question they should have done the world cup format and what is that um they were going to take 20 teams and do four groups of five with the top two advancing from each group and they would pod them so like the lakers and clippers couldn't be in the same group but you could get like a strong one and a strong two. Like the Bucks could have drawn, you know, like the the Celtics as a two seed and the Rockets as a three seed or something like that. Like, sure, that's unfair to them. Um, but it still would have been like every game would have actually mattered because it would have been a double round robin. So you play eight games with the top two advancing. 
So no load management, no bullshit. It was just like, here we go. And right now we're getting 80 some odd games that are essentially pointless. The big carrot for this restart is like a tournament for the eight seed. Who cares? <laughs> or oh, the Lakers are the Lakers going to curb stomp the Spurs or the Kings or the like, who cares? I, I guess it'd be cool if Zion steals the eight seed, but um, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, all the good teams are there, and that's fine. But the 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 eight seed tournament entertaining is all hell. Like, why is this entertaining? I don't care who the eight seed is. They're they're lucky to win. The two eight seeds are like over under half a game one in the first round. Who cares? Yeah, so I guess the casual sports they, they fan opportunity. <laughs> yeah, why well, do you think the they did it the way they did? Well, I when I saw that it floated, I, I thought like 90% of the public would be like, hell yeah, this sounds great. And it seemed like the uh, sentiment ran against it, which I thought was crazy. Um, oh, it's not fair to what if what if the ones what if the really elite teams get drawn into a group of death? I'm like, well, I mean, what if? So what? Then you still just have to win. But also, any team that doesn't win the championship this year is going to claim an asterisk. The team that wins it is going to say they're the champs, and everyone else is going to say this is a lesser than title than every other one ever awarded. And they might have a point. So why not use this opportunity to do something that's like really fun? Okay, the, the Lakers get drafted into some really sick group with the Celtics and the Rockets and like the their five seed is the Blazers with Nurkic and Zach Collins back and it's unfair and they go five and three and lose I mean it's already such a screwed up situation that is anybody really gonna hold it against them why not do something fun who cares but instead they did the most boring thing possible and all the play-in games are boring and the first round's gonna be boring I mean, not only you have the lack of competitive balance that you always get in the first round, but we're also playing it in front of an empty gym. So there's going to be just no interest whatsoever. It's going to just be boring and stupid. It definitely, yeah, it's, it seems like the NBA could have kind of used it to experiment a little bit. They definitely seem like one of the leagues by far most likely to do that. I'm surprised that they took such a conventional approach. You know, or experimenting yeah, I, with like I, that. I, I would never think that one of these stodgy or older leagues would do it. But the NBA, uh, it's kind of unfortunate. They do, the WNBA playoff system is actually awesome. Of course, nobody cares about the WNBA. So like five people even know what it is. Uh, their playoff system's great. And they also do a lot of experimenting with the G League. And yeah, you had this one-off opportunity to at least do something cool or different with the NBA. And they just went for like the most conservative route possible. But they'll probably draw monster ratings and make money. So who cares what I have to say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they could do anything. I mean, the Madden Sims and the NBA Sims are getting viewers. <laughs> yeah. So I think anything is going to get people to watch. Yeah, it'll it'll work out fine. It just could have been better. I, I was just a little disappointed that they're just wasting like three weeks of everybody's time. with something that is not going to matter in the, in the long run for determining the 2020 champion. Yeah, it's weird with the no gym, with nobody in the gym. I wonder if any, or maybe if the players believe that it's important, they'll try. But if they believe that it's not, they won't. Like I could see the players kind of coming to their own independent conclusion about how much they cared. And yeah, it does sound really like it would be. Well, even the, the it would be defensible teacher, I mean, almost, you know, if if Steph Curry or LeBron was like, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I I might, I'm not gonna like. 
I'm not getting up for this game or something, you know, like who cares? Well, it's weird because even there's not even the pride of like, we want the best record. Right? Milwaukee's going to have the best record and the Lakers are going to have the second best record. There's, there's not even some sort of weird competitive spirit. It's just kind of like, oh, the three and four seeds are up for grabs, but with no home court, it's just entirely irrelevant. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Um, okay. Spoon, thank you so much for all your NBA knowledge and, uh, Ralabob truth dropping and cryptic tweets and stories. It was uh, pretty enjoyable, I think. Hopefully, the people like it. My pleasure. All right. Thanks for being on the show. Talk to you later.